heard a story some months ago about a man, elderly man, who was on his deathbed, and he was reminiscing with his uh, with his wife over their years together. And uh, he said, "Sarah, if you uh, if you remember, shortly after we were married, the depression struck, and we lost everything, lost our our home and all of our savings. But there you are, right there with me." And uh, then during the war, when I was drafted, you uh, became a nurse. And uh, when I woke up in the hospital wound after being wounded, there you were, Sarah, right uh, by my side. And uh, we've had a lot of, lot of problems with our, our children. But uh, there, there you were always, right by my side. And now here I am, uh, desperately ill, and uh, you're still by my side. Sarah, he said... I think you're bad luck. (laughs) The the point of that story, if there is one, is that sometimes we ascribe uh, our misfortunes to the wrong person. Uh, We we do have an enemy, but uh, the enemy is not always the person that we uh, imagine that it is. It's not our spouse. It's not our employer, uh, as uh, difficult as it may be to work for him. It's not uh, some employee who's lazy and who's uh, uh, causing trouble in the business. It's not our children, basically. We have another enemy. It's the one that, that our Lord and the apostles call the devil, the old slanderer. He's the one who is behind the scenes creating all the mischief that uh, causes so much distress uh, to our lives. Now, some of you know our thinking, oh, my goodness, you do not really believe in a personal devil, do you? Uh, that's the sort of thing that people believed back in the medieval period when they put gargoyles on, on their buildings to scare away demons, and they believed in uh, little chubby angels and things like that. Uh, that's, uh, that, people believe that sort of thing in the pre-scientific uh, era. That's a very primitive way of describing the evil forces that are at work in society today. Uh, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I do believe in a personal devil, not because I've never seen one. No one has ever showed up on my front porch in a baggy set of underwear, red underwear, and a trident, and said, I'm here to tempt you. Uh, I've never seen him, and I don't know of anyone else who has seen him, but our Lord believed in a personal devil, and so did the apostles. And I'm really not at liberty to take any lesser view of reality than our Lord did. So if I'm going to call myself a Christian and submit to the Lordship of Christ, I must believe in a personal devil because he did. And his apostles did. Now as a case in point, I'd like to have you turn to Ephesians 6 and look at the description which the Apostle Paul, an inspired apostle, one who speaks with the authority of, of our Lord Jesus himself, the description that he gives us of, uh, of the evil one. Paul says, finally, I'm reading verse 10 of chapter 6. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. The verb is passive, literally, be strengthened in the Lord. Take strength in the Lord himself. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now let's uh, recall for a moment the uh, background of this passage. 
Paul has been describing for us in Ephesians, the stupendous plan which God envisioned from the very beginning to, to create a new race. We've made a mess of things. And the Lord set out to put things right, to bring order out of chaos, to create a new race, a new humanity. When Adam sinned and fell, he separated himself from God and consequently separated himself from the rest of the human race, the human race that was to follow. And uh, he began to live a less than godlike life. And that's been the story of, of humanity, the story of the human race, from, from the very beginning. But what our Lord has done is create a new humanity in which there is harmony. We, we can live together with one another and there is purity. And he's not going to be thwarted. He's not going to be frustrated. That's his plan, and he's going to see that it gets done. Now, that's the message of Ephesians. But uh, Satan has plans as well, as Paul puts it. He has a scheme. He has a plan. He's not out there randomly making mischief like a hyperactive child going around breaking things. There's something more, much more than that entailed in, in Satan's activity. He is a schemer. He's a plotter. He's a planner. And his plan is to subvert God's plan, to overthrow his plan to bring, bring about this new humanity. And uh, that's what causes all the disharmony in the world. That's why people are bad. Most people don't want to be bad, but they are. That's why we do things that we should not do. That's why we, uh, that's why we sin. We have an enemy, a hostile, inveterate enemy that's unseen, but he's there, he's real, he's just as real as his podium, but he's unseen. And that's why Paul says that, that we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might so we can take a stand against the, uh, the devil. The word that Paul uses here is taken from the Greek word diabolo, diabolos, we get our word diabolical from it. That means uh, the slanderer, the one who speaks against us, the one who wants to undo the good thing that God has done in, in our lives and in the lives of his church. Now, Paul says, finally, that's the bottom line to it all. The point is that when we begin to live like God's new humanity, this new community, as I said the first time we went through this book, all hell will break loose. And I, and I mean that literally. Hell will break loose against us. Satan will do everything that he can to blunt and frustrate and thwart uh, your efforts to be what God wants you to be. And that's why Paul says, finally, the bottom line, the well-known bottom line, the last thing I want to say is that if you're going to live like this, you're going to, you're going to attract satanic attention and, and things will get difficult. It'll, it will be a fight. It will be a struggle. Life will not be easy. So we need to be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power, which Paul further describes here as a matter of putting on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Four times in this, uh, in this passage, he uses the word stand to describe our, our, our stance as Christians. He says you need to stand, you can stand fast, and having done everything, you can stand. The point is when the battle is over, or it may be raging around you, when everything is said and done, you're still left standing there. You won't succumb to Satan's attacks. You won't be devastated by them. 
For, as he explains in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are two things that Paul uh, says here in this description of, of Satan. The first is that he is a schemer. He has a plan. His plan is to subvert God's plan to make something of the human race, and he does so by cunning. The, the word that's used here for schemes is a word that's used in all of Greek literature for um, chicanery, trickery, uh, devious approaches to, to, uh, to life, uh, planning that, that, that has as its end uh, a destructive purpose. Now, Revelation describes uh, Satan as a dragon having seven heads, and I think for myself the point of that description is that he's very, very intelligent. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Only God is omniscient. We need to remember that we Christians are not dualists. We don't believe in two equal and opposite powers, Satan over here and God over here, the two aligned and, and somewhat even in their capacities. And their attributes. Not at all. God is, uh, is God. He is the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe, and Satan is one of his creatures. And he operates under his authority. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He can't read our minds. But he's had uh, thousands of years of experience observing us. He knows what we'll do and what we're inclined to do when we're put in certain situations. And uh, uh, he, he's very, very, very intelligent. Much wiser than we are. Much more perceptive about life. Much more insightful. He knows more than we do. And uh, we're no match for him. See? You cannot outsmart the devil. That's what Paul is saying. He's a schemer. And, and he schemes uh, in order to destroy. That's the other thing that Jesus says about him. Not only is he a liar and a deceiver, but he's a murderer. He's behind the deaths of, of small children and all the tragic, terrible things that, that happen to us. He's out to destroy the human race. There's nothing good about him. He doesn't have anything but malicious intent. And the way he accomplishes his ends is by lying to us tricking us, deceiving us, making us think that his way is, is, is the right way. But as, as the scripture puts it, there is a way that seems right unto man, but, but the end is the way of death. See. So we're up against an invisible foe who is unbelievably intelligent. We're no match for it. And secondly, he says he's a very powerful uh, foe. This hierarchy of evil is described here as... Uh, as powers against authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the, in the heavenly realm. Uh, the spiritual realm. That's what Paul means by heavenly. The spiritual realm is the, is the unseen realm all around us. Heaven is not off there someplace. Heaven is all around us, and we're surrounded by these... Uh, these demonic, hateful forces that are at work to, to destroy us and destroy God's plans uh, for good. Uh, Shakespeare is right. The world is a stage. 
that people are merely players, and behind the stage is the, is the master uh, producer. Uh, it's much more like a puppet uh, show than anything else. The people on the stage are merely Satan's puppets, and uh, he's the one behind the scenes, accomplishing, trying to accomplish his, uh, his will. One of the uh, interesting peaks behind the scenes that the apostles give us is in Second Timothy 2. Would you turn there with me, please? Second Timothy 2:24. Now let's back up one verse, uh, verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will give them a change of heart, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Listen to this. Who has taken them captive to do his will. Do you see what he's saying? The person who is giving you the gears this week. The spouse who is causing you so much pain and anguish. Or the children that cause you to fret and uh, produce so much anxiety in your life, the employer who asks you to do unreasonable things, they are not the enemy. They've been victimized by the enemy. That's what Paul is saying. So that we're not to hate them. We're not even to see them as the enemy. But to see them as the tools and the instruments of this evil, malignant, malevolent force behind the scenes, moving them to do his will. Now, that's, that's something that's not, uh, that's not uh, widely known in the world. We tend to think that what, what we see is what is. Paul gives us a glimpse behind the scene. Behind the scene and the observable and the known, what we can touch and feel and taste and talk to and communicate with, there is an unseen power that is incredibly powerful, and we are no match for him in, in strength or in wisdom. And that's why Paul says we have to take up the armor of God. We have to be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might because he's the only one who's been able to, to, to subdue the evil one. There's no political force on earth that can control Satan. I always have to chuckle when our, when our uh, political candidates, as, as wise and as able as many of them are, tell us that they're going to put an end to war, they're going to put an end to unemployment, they're going to stop deficit spending, they're going to do this, and I just have to chuckle. They are not. Because uh, behind the scenes, there is this evil power at work to, to cause us to do his will. He's the real mischief maker. And political uh, movements and human power is, is not adequate to frustrate him. There, there is another power, though. It's, it's the power of, of the cross. You see... You, the New Testament makes it very clear that this world is not yet our Father's world. It's all right to sing that song because ultimately he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. But for the present time, he has turned this world over to Satan and his uh, cohorts, and uh, they're, they're making a mess of things. God's not trying to run the world right. He's letting Satan have his day. When Jesus was in the garden and, and the Roman soldiers came to get him and after Judas kissed him to betray him, Jesus said, this is your hour, now darkness reigns. 
He was simply ad- admitting the fact, facing the fact, as we must face it, that this world belongs to Satan. Darkness reigns. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan is the god of this world. And in 1 John 5, John says, The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. That's uh, their idiom for our idiom. Satan has the world in his pocket. It's his world. He's permitted to, to have the run of the place up to a point. Up to a point. Turn over a few uh, verses to Colossians, a few books, uh, pages to Colossians 1. Paul says that our Lord has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. It's all by the cross. Satan is, is, is a defeated foe. We, we don't have to pray that Satan will be bound. He is bound to us when we take our strength from the Lord. He has no power over us. He, he, he put, he vanquished these principalities and powers in the cross. Struck me when I was reading this that it was very much like the situation that existed in the Second World War after the United States had invaded Europe. The, the outcome was not in doubt. There's no question about who would win the war at that point. Germany was being squeezed from all directions and it was no, only a, a matter of time before, uh, before the war would be brought to an end. But Hitler insanely fought on. Even though all of his counselors told him to surrender, he continued to fight. And it's very much like, like Satan's reaction to the victory that, that Christ has, has brought about. He continues to fight and to war and to do mischief, and, and he can still take lives, but his end is near. His destiny is certain. The outcome's not in doubt. We've, we've got the end of the book. We've read the outcome. And we know that it's only a question of time before Satan and all of his forces are 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 vanquished. In the meantime, Paul says in verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, the evil day or the day of evil is simply the day when you're assaulted by Satan. It could be right now while you're sitting here. It could be tomorrow. It could be any time. When these fierce attacks upon us come to, uh, to doubt or to give way to fear, or to give, give way to, to a sense of hopelessness, or to succumb to temptation, to sin, when those attacks come. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Paul was, you know, he was under house arrest when he wrote these words. Sitting in his own private uh, apartment in Rome, waiting, awaiting trial before Nero, and handcuffed to a Roman soldier. And I suspect that as... Uh, as Paul was writing these words, and he, he thought of the armor of God in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 11, God is described as coming to vanquish his armies in the breastplate of righteousness and belted with truth. And he, he looked at this Roman soldier and just reminded him that uh, our armor, the armor that's forged and furnished to us by God, is very much like that armor. And, and he just described the young Roman soldier who was sitting next to him. And if you'll notice as you read through the various elements of armor, there are six of them, that three are the sort of things that a soldier would wear all the time, 
And three are the elements of weaponry and armament that, that a soldier would take up when he's under assault or when he's going out to war. And the verb tenses, the verb forms, rather, indicate that this is so. There are three things that you already possess, three items of armor that, that in, with which you were clothed this morning, and three that you have to take up. Now, the three that you currently possess are uh, described beginning with verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Literally, he says, having the belt of truth buckled around your waist. It's already there. You don't need to go fetch it. It's there. Just cinch it up. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. It's already there. Just remind yourself that you presently possess it. And with your feet fitted with the gospel of peace, the good news of the peace that we have with God is as a firm footing. Now, the three, the three elements of armor that you currently possess are the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and uh, the shoes that symbolize the good news of our peace with God. And, and these are designed to to counter specific attacks of the evil one. The, the belt of truth uh, is, is where we begin. That's where a soldier always began. He, he got up, you know, they wore these long togas, and uh, the, the soldiers would tuck the bottoms of their togas under their belt to get them out of the way instead of wearing them long and flowing. That was, uh, they did that only on formal occasions. And then they would cinch up their belt. Much like the, most of you men will remember the web belts that, that we had to carry in the service that you hung your canteen and ammunition pouch and all the other stuff on. Because everything hung from that. The scabbard which held the sword, was, uh, it was fastened to the belt. Now, now one, of, one of Satan's fiercest, most familiar attacks to all of us is doubt. You wake up some morning and you, I have conned myself into believing the gospel. This couldn't possibly be, be true. The first thing we need to do is cinch up our belt. Just remind ourselves that this is reality. This is true. This is the real thing. Nothing else is really true. If it doesn't, if it isn't in accord with this revelation that God has given to us. That's what keeps us steady. It's just that reminder that th this is truth. That's all. John Fisher sings, read the Bible. The words inside are true and reliable. Everything else in the world is a mixture of truth and error. But the Bible is true. Pure, unadulter uh, unadulterated truth. And so when Satan comes along, as he did, did to Jesus, and he said, turn these stones into bread, and we start thinking, aha, that's right, life consists of having enough bread. I've got to go out and earn more bread. That's what will make me happy. That's what will satisfy me. That's where reality lies. And God says, no. No, bread will never satisfy you. The more of that you get, the more you want. Life does not consist of things that you can buy or power that you can purchase with your money. Life consists of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, that's what causes us to live. That's what adds that extra quality of life to life that we're looking for. It's the truth of God's Word. Some of you remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a power failure here in, in Boise, and, and every clock in our house, with the exception of the ones on our wrist, uh, is electric. 
It threw everything off. And, it's, you know, these digital clocks, when it throws them off, it, they don't just stop. It just throws them way off. And one of our clocks said 1.11 when I got up in the morning, and the other one said 4.45 in the afternoon. And every clock in the place was, was different. And uh, I looked at my wristwatch, and Carolyn looked at hers, and, and we had different times, and we didn't know what time it was. And I was supposed to get to the men's study, and I didn't have the foggiest idea what time it was. I, you know, she, she just nudged me, and she said, aren't you supposed to be going to the Bible study? And I yeah, and I hit the floor running, and, and I didn't know what time it was. You know what I did? I, I, I dialed that little number that you called, and I got the time, and that set everything straight. That was the truth. Everything else in the house was off. But that was the truth. And that's the way we have to look at Scripture. Everything else is off a lot or slightly off but God's word, God's word is true that's where we begin you just cinch up your belt you remind yourself that's true second thing we need to do is remind ourselves of the breastplate of righteousness the breastplate was a contraption that uh, protected the upper body from really a little bit below the hips all the way to the to the uh, shoulders and it protected the front and the back I've heard sermons preached uh, making note of the fact that there is no armor behind and so you can never retreat. But actually, if you've ever seen a picture of a Roman soldier, uh, they were protected behind as well. They had this, uh, this breastplate and then a kind of a skirt that they wore that was made out of metal plates to protect them. That's the breastplate. Not a very heavy sort of thing, but a very valuable sort of thing to have because it protected their vital organs. It was sort of like a flak jacket. And, and Paul says that's the second thing you need to be aware of is your righteous position with God. You see, Satan not only attacks in the realm of doubt, he, he attacks in the realm of guilt. I know what he does to me. He just, just brings these vague feelings of guilt. God is never vague. Never. When, when you know, these free-floating feelings of guilt always come from the evil one. You just wake up in the morning and you feel defiled for some strange reason. You can't pin it down. That's the evil one. It's not God. Or, you know, you, you've done something terrible to your kids. You've yelled at them and, and uh, said all kinds of abusive things to them. And then, and then afterwards you've, you've, you've realized that you were sinful and wrong and you've confessed it and you've put it away. And then the next, you know, that night you go in and you see them in bed and they're all quiet and peaceful. And you're just stricken with this sense of guilt and remorse. And you just feel terrible. Well, again, that, that sense of guilt does not come from God. Once we face the sin and, and put it away, we, we don't need to, to feel remorse. There is a godly sorrow. You know, we need to ask God for help. But, but that, that, the, the guilt that lingers, that hangover guilt that lingers after we've dealt with the sin and put it away is not, not from God. It's from Satan. And so what we need to do is remind ourselves of the breastplate of righteousness. That's what protects our heart. That's what protects our emotions, you see keeps us safe and secure, that I am as righteous as God's Son. That's what imputed righteousness means. He didn't give us half of the righteousness of His Son. He gave us all of the righteousness of His Son. So that when I look at myself in the mirror, it's as though I'm looking at our Lord Himself and all of His, His perfection. Now, I know I'm not perfect, but that's the way God sees me. That's the way he sees you. That's the breastplate of righteousness. The third article is uh, 
is the shoes. The Roman soldiers wore a kind of a half boot. It looked like a sandal with hobnails with uh, thongs that they wrapped up on their legs that were more ornamental than anything else. The important part of the shoe was the, the sturdy uh, sole on which there were hobnails driven. And that's what kept them, uh, gave, them a, gave them firm footing when they were fighting. And Paul says the, the firm footing that we have, the good understanding, the foundation on which we operate is, is the fact that we have peace with God. He's not talking here about the proclamation of the gospel. He's rather referring to the good news that we have peace with God. There's no hostility between us and God. He's not angry at us. He's not frowning. He hasn't withdrawn because of the sins of the past or the present or the future. He loves us. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, he who spared not his own son, will he not give us freely all things? If he, if he didn't withhold his son, is he going to withhold any other aspect of his love? You see, the, the third area of attack, the one that I feel so often, is isolation. A feeling of separation between me and God, that God has gone off and left, and the skies are brass, and he doesn't hear me, and he doesn't care. And we need to remind ourselves, no, we're, we're shot. The foundation underneath that keeps us firm and strong and stable is that we have peace with God. He's not angry. He's not upset. He hasn't gone off and left us for somebody else who cares more about him. As the little hymn puts it, near, so very near to God, nearer I could not be, for in the person of his Son I am as dear as he. You see, that's, that's the way God looks at us. Now, those are the three elements of armor that we all possess. You, you have them on right now. You don't see it, but you're sitting there clothed with uh, the belt of truth, the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, and the, uh, your feet shod with the gospel of peace. And those are the ways that we defend ourselves against doubt and guilt and that feeling of isolation with which Satan afflicts us. Now, the next three articles of of uh, uh, armor are described in verses uh, 16 and following. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, when a soldier went off to war, he would, uh, he would first uh, pick up his shield and then he would clamp on his helmet, and then he would put his sword in his scabbard, and he would go off to fight. Shield was a, a wooden affair, about four feet tall. Actually, they had two types of infantry in those days. They had a light uh, infantry and a heavy infantry. And the description that Paul is giving here is of the heavy uh, infantry, the heavily armed foot soldier. And the word he uses for shield here is a word that describes this uh, big thing about five feet tall and about three feet wide that uh, they called a scutum. It was, uh, the inner core is made out of wood, uh, somewhat like, like plywood, laminated uh, wood. And then on the outside, they put uh, leather and then metal on the edges. And these were used to protect them from incendiary uh, arrows. One of their techniques, one of their, uh, the techniques that they used in warfare was to launch flaming arrows into the air. There would be thousands of archers who would be behind the infantry 
And they would loft these things up into the air. And you can imagine what it would be like. These were arrows that were tipped with pitch and were flaming. They had these things dropping in on you as you're attacking on foot. Well, they, the uh, equipment that they developed to defend against these uh, incendiary missiles was this scutum, this, this large uh, uh, shield. And they would just hold it up over their head like that while they advanced. And the arrows would, would strike the, uh, the leather and would embed themselves in the shield and they'd be extinguished. And they would continue to march unharmed. Now, I, I, we know from reading in history books that very often these, uh, these flaming arrows descending on them would come in by the thousands, would cause soldiers to uh, lose their nerve and break and, and run. And once they ran, of course, they were, they were finished. I think what Paul has in mind here are these attacks upon us that cause failure of nerve. That is, these attacks that cause fear and anxiety. Because of the response, the response is to lift the shield of faith. The only way to conquer fear is through faith. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. The answer to fear is always belief in God's ability. These are these fears that assail us that we're just not adequate. You know, I, I, I'm out there in the business world and I'll, I'll, I don't have what it takes. I'll never make it. I'm going to fail. I'm going to destroy our business. I'm going to destroy our family. I'm going to send us into bankruptcy. And we, we just give fear to anxiety. Or we start thinking about our children. And we see them uh, getting into trouble. And, and we get anxious and fearful. And, and we don't know what to do. These, I think, are these incendiary missiles that Satan fires at our, at our hearts. And uh, in those times, the only response is faith. Simply to believe that our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but of God, who has rendered us adequate, you see? That's the response. In, in the Old Testament, there's a very, very interesting story of Hezekiah, who was 8th century king of, of the southern kingdom of Judah. woke up one morning, went out for his daily walk, and he looked over the fence, and, and here were 250,000 Assyrians outside. And uh, he had maybe... Uh, 15, 20,000 soldiers. And, and the, the Rabshakeh, who was the spokesman for the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, comes down to the foot of the wall and he, and he reads this letter in Hebrew so that everybody in the city could hear it. And he says, I, I'd give you a thousand horses to ride on if you had a thousand cavalrymen. He knew he didn't have anything to fight with. And he said, where is the, how do, why do you think your God can protect you? Where are the gods of Hamath and the other cities that, that the Assyrians had attacked? The Assyrians had a scorched earth policy. They just marched west and burned and pillaged and looted and, 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 um, and massacred entire towns. Every city in, 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 in the little country of Judah had been, was left a blackened shell. Jerusalem was left all alone in the Assyrian annals, the Assyrian histories of this period. Sennacherib says, I shut up Hezekiah in his city like a bird in a cage. Hezekiah didn't have anyone to call on. And there he was, with, you know, two, a quarter of a million soldiers outside of his city, ready to starve him out and then storm the gates and destroy him. You talk about fear. That's fear. Sennacherib goes off to his little apartment and he 
He takes the letter from the Rab Shaka and he lays it out on his bed and he gets down on his knees and he says, God, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm powerless. I can't do anything. Your name is at stake. You said you'd defend the city for the sake of your name. It's all up to you. I, I don't have the resources. I can't do it. He went to bed next night, slept, got up the next morning, looked over the wall. 185,000 Assyrians were lying dead in their tents. A plague had swept through the Assyrian army and destroyed them. It's even corroborated by the historical witnesses, the, the, the annals of the Assyrians, because when they went back, you know, they never said anything bad about their kings, but there was always something funny going on. And no explanation for why they left off the siege of, of Jerusalem when they had them shut up like a bird in, in a cage. And see, that's Hezekiah lofting the, the shield of, of faith. Now, the, the second thing that we need to do, the second element of armor that we need to put on is what he describes as the helmet of salvation. This thing looked like a football helmet. It was usually made out of bronze or iron, and, and it was filled with sponge or felt or something like that to protect the top of their heads and to take the shock of, of sort uh, blows. And usually had a plume of some sort, ostrich feathers or some, some plumage on top of their, of their uh, uh, on, 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 on the crest. The, the purpose of that helmet was to protect their head, obviously. And uh, Paul says, this is the helmet of salvation, ultimate salvation. Not only does Satan bring doubt and guilt and that sense of isolation and fear, but he also assails us with that sense of hopelessness. There's nothing out there. There's nothing to live for. No reason to go on. That's why people take their lives, and that's why people basically are bored with life, because they have nothing to live for. And, and Satan is always messing with our minds, if I can use that expression, telling us that there's nothing more. It's hopeless. Your children will never turn out right. Your marriage will never be redeemed. You'll never find satisfaction or fulfillment in this life. And what we do in a, in a time like that is clamp on the helmet of salvation. That's what protects our mind. What we need to know is that our destiny is fixed and secure. This isn't all there is. There's much more. When we come to the end of our life, it's really just the beginning of a whole new life. Free from all the anxieties and fears that, that plague us in this life. There's much, much more. Car Carolyn has a friend, Marianne Barnett, who always reads the last chapter of every book she reads because she can't stand the anxiety of knowing what's going to happen to the hero and the heroine. And basically, that's, that's what we've done. We know, we know the outcome. And so that frees us from hopelessness and fear of, of the future. And then the final element of armor here is the sword of the Spirit. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And for myself, though there are various explanations of the sword of the Spirit, I see it as a specific use of Scripture, a word of Scripture. When we are tempted to sin, Satan plagues us with guilt and with fear and with despair and with a sense of isolation from God, and he tempts us to sin. And the best illustration I can think of of this principle is, 
And I, and I wanted to spend more time talking about this, but we're out of time. It's a story of the temptation of our Lord in Matthew 4. Uh, Satan comes to Jesus after 40 days of, of temptation when he was, he was weary and wrung out and emotionally uh, strained and, and had been without food for 40 days. And he, and he says to our Lord, turn these uh, stones into, into bread. Use your power to provide for your physical needs. And what he was saying basically is, is use uh, material things to further your own ends, to, uh, uh, to, to use bread to accomplish your ministry. And Jesus said, no, and here he quotes Deuteronomy 8, a very obscure passage. Apparently Jesus had been reading the book of Deuteronomy because every one of his responses is a specific word of Scripture taken from the book of Deuteronomy. One from Deuteronomy 8, two from Deuteronomy 6. The Lord says, no, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that issues from the mouth of God. In other words, I won't sustain myself merely on the physical, but on the spiritual. So Satan takes him up to a corner of the, of the uh, temple, the parapet of the... There's a, a large platform built on which the temple was constructed, and it's, a, it's about a 400-foot drop straight off of the pinnacle. And, Jesus, and Satan says to Jesus, cast yourself off of the pinnacle because it is written. And here Satan quotes scripture. Psalm 91, he knows scripture better than we do. If, if you do, the angels, he'll give his angels charge of, of you and they, they will bear you up on their wings. He'll protect you. Jesus said, no, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He's not quoting that passage to Satan. He's not saying, I'm God, don't tempt me. He's quoting it to himself. He's saying, I will not force God's hand. I will not do this spectacular thing to advance the kingdom in a way in which God has not designed it to be advanced. So he quotes scripture to himself. So he's using the, the, the machaira, the sword. The, the word that Paul uses here for sword is the word for the little short sword that, that Roman soldiers used that revolutionized warfare in the Middle East. Before that time, they had these long, broad swords. You know, they're about four feet long. and took, uh, took a lot of effort to lift that thing up, a lot of inertia to overcome and and while uh, some Persian soldier was lifting up uh, this big heavy sword, the Roman soldier with his little macabre go, <laughs> it's probably the origin of the football term, stick. You know. <laughs> and, and that's what the Lord is doing. He's taking that little sword. And, he, and he's using it to defend himself with. And then the final temptation, as you know, is uh, he could have all the world. And it was Satan just to give. So you could have the power of all the world. Think of all the political power that's at your disposal now to, to extend the kingdom. And Jesus turns it all down and says, now you shall worship God. That's what matters in the end. It's drawing near to him, submitting to him. That's what Jesus is doing. He's using the sword of the Spirit, the word, to counterattack some specific assault, moral assault upon you. Which means that we need to know it, we need to memorize it, we need to be full of the Word so we can use it effectively. And Paul goes on by saying in verse 19, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Actually, the verse should be translated, This is done, that is, all the, uh, the equipping that's described in the verses that precede, the putting on of the armor is by means of prayer in the Spirit. That's all Paul means. We, we do this by prayer. By praying without ceasing, whenever you're attacked by doubt, reminding yourself of the truth of the Word, but saying, Lord, 
It's hard for me to believe what's in Scripture. Help me. Help me to believe it. I believe. Help my unbelief. Or when we're overcome by fear, uh, to, uh, to loft the shield of faith, but to say, Lord, it's hard for me to believe that you're going to take care of my family, or you have my, my children in hand, or, or my husband's uh, deeds are being monitored by, by your sovereign uh, control. Help me, Lord, help me to see that. He, he's just describing a, a life that's saturated, a mind that's saturated by prayers. We practice the presence of God. He's, he's not off there someplace, he's here. We can talk to him about all of these these uh, articles of armor as, as we put them on. Paul says, just keep on praying. Four times he uses the word all. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and request. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints, not only for ourselves but for others. How do we pray for people that are undergoing attack? When they're fearful, when they're anxious, when they're guilty, you see. We need to pray for them that they'll appropriate these articles of of weaponry, armament. And then Paul says in verse 19, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. See, Paul, Paul does not ask them to pray for release from prison because he saw there were greater issues at stake. He was praying that he would, would stand against all of Satan's attacks, Satan's attacks to give way to cowardice. And fear, and to start looking out for his own self-interest instead of the interests of those around. So he says, pray for me that I will appropriate the armor. When the heat's on, when the evil day comes, when I'm tempted to capitulate, to roll over and play dead, to, uh, to give way to fear and not speak a word to those that, that need it. And here's one instance where we know that these prayers were answered because we know from other portions of Scripture Precisely what happened as a result of this prayer. He, he happened to run into a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus, whom he led to Christ and then sent back to, uh, to his master, Philemon. That story is told in the book of Philemon. And uh, we also know from the book of Philippians that he began to lead these fine young soldiers to Christ, one after another. These were the, uh, the palace guard soldiers. These were the elite of, uh, of Nero's uh, palace guard. These were the fine, choice, picked young men of the empire, the men who later became uh, officers in the Roman army and who were the kingmakers in the Roman empire. And uh, Paul says the things in Philippians, he says, the things that have happened to me have proceeded under the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, the fact that I'm in prison has led to the salvation of, of many people. And then right at the end of the book, he says, uh, oh, those who are of the household of Caesar greet you these young men who, who were chained to the Apostle Paul and who watched him write the books of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon and heard him talk to people. And, and he was able to lead them to Christ. And then we know from Acts that there were a number of Jews who came to see Paul and converse with him. And many of them became believers. And Paul, uh, Acts signs off his book by saying that Paul was in his home for over two years, preaching the gospel unhindered. So uh, we know that this prayer was answered. He didn't give way to fear. He didn't fall when Satan attacked. Now, uh, just so we can finish up the book, because this is the uh, end of our study in Ephesians, will you give me one minute just to read the last paragraph? Paul here 
takes in hand his the pen and begins to write in his own handwriting. This was his sign, uh, the sign of the authenticity of, of his books. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. And I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Tychicus was the bearer of this letter and also the bearer of Colossi, the book to, uh, letter to Colossae and, and the one to uh, Philemon. Probably also his scribe, the one who took down his dictation as he wrote this, uh, wrote these words. And then finally, his wish or his benediction for the uh, brothers and sisters in uh, in uh, Asia Minor: Peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace literally uses the article here: the grace of which I've been speaking. Grace, God's resources at Christ's expense. Nice little acrostic with which to remember those words. God's resources at Christ's expense. The grace of which I speak is given to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That's all it takes, really, to have at your disposal all the armor that he describes here, all of God's resources. It's just love him. That's all, just love him. Give him your heart. Let me read to you one quotation from John White from his book, The Fight, and with this we'll conclude. Of course you will get wounded in the battle. Of course you'll get knocked off your feet, but it's the man or woman who gets up and fights again that is a true warrior. What would you think of a soldier who in the midst of battle sat down and said, I'm no good, it's no use trying anymore, nothing seems to work. There's no place for giving up. The warfare is so much bigger than our personal humiliations. To feel sorry for oneself is totally inappropriate. Over such a soldier, I would pour a bucket of icy water. I would drag him to his feet, kick him in the rear end, and put his sword in his hand and shout, Now fight! In some circumstances, one must be cruel to be kind. What if you have fallen for a tempting ruse of the enemy? What if you're not the most brilliant swordsman in the army? You hold Excalibur in your hand. Get behind the lines for a break if you're too weak to go on and strengthen yourself with a powerful draught of the wine of Romans 8 and get back into the fight before your muscles get stiff. And that's Paul's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we have all so often fallen, succumbed to the ruse, uh, ruses of, of the enemy, have believed the lie, and uh, have fallen in with him. And, and we've seen the terrible consequences in our own lives and in the lives of others. We know the wreckage that we leave behind when we listen to the lie. But Lord, we, we thank you that we can rise again, that we can arm ourselves anew with the weapons that you've given to us and go into battle knowing that the outcome is certain, that we have everything that we need. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.